Good morning, church family. You can see I resurrected filling in the blanks. So if you need a pen and you don't have one, uh, they're actually at Pastor Nate is back there. He's got a pen if you would like to have a pen. And again, that's just to keep it interesting, keep you on your toes, and keep you engaged. Well, we are back in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I want you to imagine with me the end of all things is near. Our time on earth is short, and it will never be the same. There's no going back. Just imagine with me, the food supply chain is predicted to have major gaps. And the simple things in life become hard to get, like toilet paper, contractors, and a dentist appointment. Imagine with me, the end of all things is near, and self-defense weaponry is in high demand. Imagine you can't get ammo. Freedoms seem to be vanishing. The government seems to increase in corruption and oppression. Society seems to be walking off the edge with irrational thinking. And we keep hearing news. Just imagine that we keep hearing news that Christians left and right are walking away from Christ and the authority of Scripture. Imagine you can actually smell kind of a mustiness in the air of hardship for following Christ. Not just in Afghanistan, but maybe perhaps right here. The end of all things is near. What do you do? How do you respond? What are your priorities? Now, with my background and my personality, my immediate response is to arm myself. I don't know what you think of pastors, but that's my background. My natural response, I made a list of things that I naturally would go to. More guns, more ammo, stockpile food, come up with an alternate drinking water plan, get blankets, get more ammo, save money, bunker my family in my house, don't trust people, preserve my family. Did I mention get more guns and get more ammo? Yes, I did describe our life and our society and our culture. And maybe many of you relate to my natural response. Maybe not. But I have to believe that I didn't just describe what we've experienced in this country or what others are experiencing today. I've just described some things that have described Christians for all time and specifically the audience that Peter was writing to. And then I go to Scripture, and I hear God's voice speak through the Word that there's a better way. There's a way that brings God more glory than just more ammo. It's a way that most of us are not traveling. It's a way that it's not natural for us to think. It's really quite opposite of what many of us, if you relate to me at all in any way, shape, or fashion, it's just opposite of the way we would naturally think. And so today, we are, uh, the end of all things is near. We're going to see that in the text. And how are we to live, or what are the choices we are to make in light of that reality? So, we're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
reading through 1 through 11. Let me ask the Lord just to help us understand it today. Our Father, thank you so much for your your inspired word, uh, your spirit speaking uh, through Peter, uh, given to us today. As we read this, would you help us understand it? There's There's a few things in here that are not easily understood. They seem to be a bit confusing. And so would you help us um, understand your heart in this matter? Help us to align our lives and help us to change the way we think about these things so that we can live and be caught doing the things that you want when you return. Help us again. Again, we love you. And we just want to trust you and follow you in this, uh, this time that you've appointed for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here, let's read it. Verse 1, it says this. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Because those who have suffered in their bodies are done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans, or some of your translations say Gentiles, or unbelievers choose to do, living in debauchery, lost, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Verse 4. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and in sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If you speak, you should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if you serve, you should do so with the strength God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So if you kind of keep your head buried in verse, uh, verse 1, it starts off with therefore. So in light of what these previous verses have just said. So if you were not with us last week, starting in verse 13, uh, 14, he says that if you were to suffer for doing good and for following Christ... He says, believe that you are blessed. He says, when people threaten you, do not give in to their fear of their threats, but set apart Christ as Lord. So it's not just like, hey, stop being afraid, but exalt or honor Christ in the position as the one who you are to fear. Then he says in verse 15, be prepared to give an answer for hope, but do this gently. And in verse 18, he commands us to remember that Christ suffered in his body. His suffering really means his execution. And he brought us to God. And then we discover at the end of chapter 3 that because Christ is resurrected, he's at the right hand of God the Father in the place of authority. 
and nothing comes across their plate without first passing by him. So in light of all that, therefore, verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. So therefore, you guys can write it in there in your outline. Verse 1, arm yourself with the attitude that Christ has. Now it's obvious to most of us that when there is a chance of being harmed or threatened, you take precautions, right? You avoid a certain location. You prepare yourself. You arm yourself. And today we, in our American way of thinking, we think of arming ourselves with a weapon, a gun, mace, you think, things like that. Even now I tell my kid who's driving off, bring your cell phone just in case you can call. And Peter is saying here is, Take that tendency to want to prepare and arm yourself with what really matters. Now the term arming yourself is a terminology that realizes there is a battle. And he said in 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, as travelers, or exiles to abstain from sexual sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So Peter didn't see sinful desires as this, like, this little like pet that you can play with. He saw it as something that was waging war, and so he's fully aware of the battle. And I personally here at the church have watched many in the church family not only prepare themselves with firearms, but with news and more facts and more info so that we don't get tricked. And Peter's calling us to arm ourselves with the attitude that Christ had about suffering. Now, when you think about your attitude, it's your thinking. It's your pattern of your brain. It's your purpose. It's your idea. It's where do you go when you're confronted with something? What's your automatic response, your attitude? And we saw in chapter 3 that Christ suffered leading to his death, and his death brought us to God. And though he died, he triumphed through his death, ultimately was resurrected, but it was actually through his death that he triumphed and bought and brought us back to the Father. And we are called to be his followers. You guys have heard this before. 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to be in Christ must walk as Jesus walked. It is literally the picture of walking in his footsteps in the snow. So, the Lord Jesus, through his suffering and ultimate death, brought and brought, bought our salvation. He says, arm yourself with this plan. That by following Christ and experiencing potentially suffering, and not suffering really, the ultimate of suffering is death, we can and will be victorious. And uh, for the Christian, death is a real potential. Um, it's not been here in the last couple hundred years. We have had a wonderful, wonderful privilege. We have been living in a bubble. But it is across our globe today, and it has been for the last 2,000 years, very much a real part of the Christian experience. And so Christ's suffering, according to verse 18 of chapter 3, ultimately led to his death. In the text here in verse 1, he says, those who suffered in their body, that is, suffered to the point of death, results in no more struggle with sin. 
Now, the word suffering does lead to death. And that threat of death for those who seek to harm us is weak because it's the final path to being free from our struggle. Now, I want to share quite a few scripture again, like last week we did and this week also. But there are just two passages primarily of Peter and Paul, two apostles inspired by the same spirit. And you're going to hear the same message come out of both of them. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, for what we preach is, our, is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. And not from us. He says, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. And struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, he says, we always carry around in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So we are so identified with the death of Christ that his life shines forth. And our bodies, jars of clay, are being persecuted, destroyed, but it's really his life that is seen through us. If you're a believer in Christ, just take a deep breath. Your strength, your ability, your living for God is ultimately seen in your identification in the death of Christ and understanding that anything good that comes out of you is Christ in you. He also says in verses 16 to 18, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Anybody identify with that one? Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So according to verse 1, he says, when we're in the end of days, arm ourselves with this. Christ suffered. His suffering led to death. And that death bought our salvation. Arm ourselves with that mindset. For those who have died no longer struggle with sin. You'll see in your outline, let's look at verses 2 to 6. If we're in the end of days, which we are, quite simply, live for God. Verse 2, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And in verse 3, he says, you spent enough time doing those things that pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, and drunkenness, orgies, and carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. For the believer in Christ, we exist to glorify God. Now, I know that's not revolutionary if you've been around very long, but we forget this. We do not exist 
to build our retirement plan. We do not exist to live out our life in peace. We do not exist to live to be 100. We do not exist to see our kids and grandkids reach some level of Americans' uh, success. We don't exist for anything but primarily for the glory of God. And Jesus prayed just before the cross, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And though Christ never sinned, he understood the battle of the human desires in contrast with the Heavenly Father desires. And it took him going in prayer to submit that to the Father. Now, Jesus was glor- our God, the Father was glorified through Jesus' death and resurrection and his obedience. And while we live out our life on this planet, until we take our last breath in this body, living for God and his will is to be the new normal. It's not just about a ticket to heaven. It's about living for his glory. And this text is calling us to trash the old ways, to rid ourselves of those old habits, the way the world lives. We're to realize that our bodies are not our own. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He also says in Colossians 3, put to death. This is the habit of living for God. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That is sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We'll come back to that in a minute. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now, in contrast... You must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of our Creator. We are called to live for God. And according to verse 3, he says, hey, you used to live that way. You've already filled up that cup. That's not for you anymore. And if we're not careful, we can kind of just gloss over these ugly sins that he lists. But essentially, as we march John through here, he mentions debauchery, which is excessive indulgence and sensual pleasure. God's plan for our sexuality is one man, one woman in marriage. That's God's plan. So things like pornography which we know is rampant in this room. Affairs, prostitution, partying. He said this is the old way not to be a part of who we are today. Lust, that's to desire something that's forbidden. Drunkenness, orgies, sexual out-of-control parties that are not part of God's plan. The carousing, which is excessive wine or drinking matches. And then he uses this phrase, detestable idolatry. And this is a literal or figurative image worship, but this one slips in super easy. Notice above here in verse uh, six, uh, verse 5, he mentions sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So greed is idolatry. Think about that. 
detestable idolatry is the old way. And if you've been, if you come to faith in Christ since being an adult, um, you probably find that you can't do the things you used to do. You start to get kind of sick, or you start to just kind of like have a bad taste in your mouth when you try to do the old things. How many of you guys can identify you came to faith in Jesus as an adult, and then you found yourself around the old crowd, and you couldn't do it, and you just found yourself kind of going, nah, not for me. Then how many of you guys can identify with that phrase there? He says, the unbelievers are surprised when you don't join their reckless way of living. What? Why? And their wise turn to abuse and mockery. Interesting, who you thought were friends, who now you realize are dark and light. It says they heap abuse on you. And now we normally think of when they say they're surprised you don't join their reckless living. The text mentions sexual immorality and kind of it's this excessive wild living. But I think in context, the reckless living is that they know verse 5 is coming, because we all do. We know there is a God, and we know we're going to stand before him. Verse 5, he says it. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So true reckless living is ignoring the fact and not keeping in mind that God's coming judgment is in mind for unbelievers. Quite frankly, guys, it is reckless to live life thinking you have time to respond to God's free gift through Jesus Christ. That's the definition in my book of recklessness. I'll, I'll figure that out someday. We all know if you've lived, I mean, a whopping five years, you know that you have no guarantee to make it home today from your car. We know that. One of you could be with the Lord or be dead this week. It's reckless as an unbeliever to live life like you're not going to stand before him. When we know deep in our heart, according to Romans 1, we know there is a God and we know we're accountable to him. So today, friend, is a day to believe in Christ. And the only way to avoid this judgment mentioned in verse 5 is to be born again. So I always ask this question, are you born again? Children in the house, are you born again? Adults, are you born again? You don't put on religion and get to avoid God's judgment. You have to be born again. And you are born again when you put your faith in or believe that Jesus Christ, God's son, the maker of this universe, came and lived a sinless life. He died on the cross and he rose again for your sins. You must be born again. So verse 6, though I believe the NIV words are a little, a little bit strange. Uh, the point is, he says this, this is the reason the gospel was preached. Now it's preached to people who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now the gospel had been preached, and many believed it. And those believers died, and they know that many of them had been martyred or uh, judged by human standards. And on a human level, these believers really were not accepted. They were judged by the society at the time, but they died. And what are they doing now? They're living according to God in regard to the Spirit. And so they are free from the judgment of the world and from the condemnation of the world. 
And I just want to repeat, and this is something that people just don't think of, and we honestly are not very good at, is this. As born-again Christians, we know that we are forgiven by the death of Jesus. But we are to continuously kick ourselves free from the sin that so easily entangles us. We are to be in the habit of sinning less as we identify with Christ more. And we know this, that while we live out this earth, we are to live for God's awesome glory. We're to live out this life to the full for the Lord's glory. But unless he intervenes, all of us are going to stop breathing and take our last breath on this earth. We are called to start living like we are going to be for all eternity. We are called to live for God. Let's spend less time worried about this life and more time concerning ourselves with living for his glory. Let's read on to verse 7. What are we to do? Remember the end is very close. Verse 7 he says this, the end of all things is near. Now turn with me just two pages over to 2 Peter chapter 3. The term end here is the concluding act. It's like you're at a play and you wonder if you're over and you see in the bulletin or the, the pamphlet that it's the final act. It's like going to the fireworks and seeing the grand finale, right? The end of all things, the final act. And Peter picked this up from the Lord Jesus. And people since the beginning have been, well, since 2,000 years, have been mocking this idea. Instead of looking up there, I want to read this together out of Second Peter chapter 3, just so to give you an idea, what's he mean by the end of all things is near? Chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through our apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. And here's how they'll scoff. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. We just mentioned that in the text. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So if people have said to you, I think we're in the end times. And then your response is, nah, it's always been this way. That's, not a, bad, that's a bad sign. Here we go. Verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Deliberately forget that God did not make the world. Or that God made the world. Sound familiar in our world? By verse 6, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. What else are people trying to forget? Global flood. It's deliberate, friends. Don't buy into it. Verse 7. By the same word, that present heaven and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8. Do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's our Lord. Verse 10. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by, destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And this is why I'm reading this. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? If we're in the end of days, how should this impact us? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So how is the end of days supposed to impact us? We ought to be running towards holiness. It's intended to have a huge impact in our lives. And it's a call to live with a sense of urgency about the end of times, to worry less about how inflation is affecting my 401k. It's called to uh, call us to let worry less about this fading beauty. And let's face it, it's all fading. Or staying alive a little bit longer. But we're called to live for him when he, gets, when he returns. So just a real practical question what this looks like. When making decisions today, and we all have to make decisions, how does the fact that we are in the end of days and Christ could return at any moment impact this decision? Or how about this? Do I want to be caught doing this when he comes back real soon? It's like the mom and dad who go on a date, tell the kids do A, B, and C, and they know it's been a couple hours and they're already done with dinner. And they know... The headlights are pulling in the drive. And they don't want to be caught not doing what mom and dad said. So be ready. Let's continue to read. We've got short time here. But seven, the second part of seven, he says, Therefore be alert and sober mind so that you may pray. So you write it in there. If we're in the end times, which we are, stay alert to pray. Alert is self-controlled, being in the right mind. Think of sober judgment. Now what dulls your mind? Excessive screen time. How do you feel after four hours of vegging on Netflix? Excessive screen time. Excessive hobbies. Greed. The sins mentioned above in the text here. Too much sugar at Thanksgiving. Too much alcohol. What makes you alert? Reading. Knowing God's word, seeing the truth of God's word give answers to life, seeking to obey God, exercising, adequate sleep, healthy food, seeking to love people, praying. In fact, Jesus said this in Luke. And we'll see if he says it in Luke. In Luke 22, Jesus said to his disciples, Why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So why is prayer so essential? Without prayer, you will fall into temptation. And as Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he prayed, lead us not into temptation. If I had to write a letter to open door, or I just let me phrase that. If God wrote a letter to open door, I believe he would rebuke us for our lack of prayer. Uh, we've sought to incorporate prayer at the end of our services here. Um, we try to incorporate prayer in our adult Bible fellowships. You'll see that next week. Uh, we've even tried to pray at the close of like our Just Read on Wednesdays. But to be honest with you, every effort 
that open door is sought to get people praying, virtually every effort has fallen flat. According to the text, it says that verse 7, it reveals that not being alert and sober keeps us from prayer. So if we are not a praying church, we have to conclude that we're intoxicated or dulled mind with something. Whether vacations or leisure or worry or wealth or our health or social media or phones or whatever it is, we're not a praying church, we're not an alert church. And so I just want to say this, and we're going to close out our time in the service in a little bit. It's time of prayer, but prayer is the work of ministry. I'm just becoming increasingly aware that prayer is the whole package. It is what God's called us to do, to trust in him with hands up, Lord, we need you. If God is stirring in your heart in the weeks ahead, and you want to be a part of something or an idea to be able to stir our church family to prayer more and more. I don't think we can have too much. Um, I, I will be a support. I will be a champion. You come to me, and I would get so behind you, you would feel fuel and wind. You'd feel every resource you need to get prayer going in our church family. But that's definitely an area, friends. He says, be alert and sober minds so that you can pray. You guys can write it in there. Verse 8, love deeply. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. He says, above all, or supreme, or of highest importance, love being goodwill, benevolence, affection. And the Bible warns that in the end, the goodwill, the benevolence, and affection will grow cold. And this is to not be of Christians And by loving earnestly, notice something peculiar he says there. Love each other deeply uh, because love covers over a multitude of sins. When we sin, it doesn't just affect us, it affects others. And by loving each other deeply, we can minimize the devastation of people's sin in our lives. We all have family members who are just bulldozing people with their sin. Did you know when you love each other deeply, you can minimize the fallout of their sin? Isn't that cool? Think about this in the body of Christ. Honestly, we are all forgiven before God, but we're all learning to kick sin to the curb. When the body of Christ sins, when we actively love each other deeply, we can be used by God to minimize the fallout of that. You want to be that kind of person? Calls us to love each other deeply. He says in Colossians 3, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgave you, which that is the key to forgiveness. It's not forgetting, it's remembering Jesus forgave you, and you forgive them. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So love is an action. It's a choice to do what's best for others. And so here's a heart check for you before we continue on in the text. Love being an action, expressing goodwill or benevolence. 
over the last couple years, has your heart grown cold? Have you been actively loving people, giving benevolence and goodwill less and less? We're called to love each other deeply. Now, verse 9, I think, is an incredibly strange thing that God has for us here. But when we are in the end of times, he says this, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Which, this is usually the last thing we do or think of when we're under stress or living in the end of times. And in fact, it's usually the first thing that when we're stressed goes out the window. And here he says, in the end of times, open up your home and your life with hospitality. Now when somebody came to faith in Christ, family ties were often broken. Whether traveling missionaries or people in need, he says, there will be a need until Christ returns to open up our homes and our lives. And he, by saying, don't just do this, but do this without grumbling, he's acknowledging that it's hard work. And so we've been tempted to believe the lie that hospitality is for those who are really good at it. And he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You don't have to be good at it. You just got to choose the joy of the Lord in it. And being hospitable while suffering or in the end of times is counterintuitive. You have to make a choice to do it. You have to invite people even into your mess and where you're at in life. And here Peter commands us to be normal and a habit while we're living in the final act. Interesting. So the cooking, the cleaning, the decorating and the money spent to minister to people with hospitality is godly. Did you know that? It's something you want to be caught doing when he returns. I know that doesn't seem spiritual, but the text is telling us we are called to live with hospitality and offer it to people with a joyful heart. And our final point today, you can write it in there, verses 10 and 11, is this. Serve fervently so that God is praised. He says in verse 10, Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so as the, with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever. Amen. So according to verse 10, the gift here is undeserved benefit. It's something you don't deserve. And think through all the benefits that God's given you. You've been given benefits to benefit other people. That is what God has planned. Now, we know spiritual gifts are gifts given by the Spirit, and those are mentioned in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. But really, this is not really about finding out your gift and finding fulfillment in that. But the point is this. We have all received God's grace through Jesus Christ. And the way we steward that grace is to fervently seek to serve others with everything God's given us. 
We've all been given different things. We've all been given, those who trust in Christ have been given free gift of salvation. But when it comes to the resources and gifting as God's given us, he's given us different gifts. The name of the game is called to serve and serve fervently. And when we capture this idea of serving, we're capturing that idea of a servant. And the servant is the heartbeat of Jesus. A few scriptures just to close with, and I'll get you some questions. Jesus said this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Are you a believer in Christ? That's what he says. Colossians 3 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. And Peter drives home this point in chapter 2. Live such good lives among the pagans, serving one another, that is, that they accuse you of doing wrong and they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits. So notice the, uh, what verses 10 and 11 result in. When they serve each other fervently, God is praised. And God is praised when his kids serve each other. And that's really ultimately how you know you're using your spiritual gift. Is that as you're, you're serving others, they praise God. They don't say, good job, you're awesome at that. They praise God. And this is why I'm standing here today. Verse 11 says, if you speak, you should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. So I'm not trying to impress you with my speaking or the lack thereof, right? But in fact, I'm serving here. And if I'm doing this appropriately, there's two things that will happen. You will make adjustments today in light of the fact that we are living in the end of times. And secondly, you will praise God, or God will receive the praise as you do so. So I find it ironic, this season in which so many of you have said, are we in the end of times? I feel like we're at the end of times. Instead of arming ourselves with the attitude of Jesus, I'm hearing this rumbling of arming ourselves with ammo, guns, food, Toilet paper, right? Instead of pursuing holiness and gratitude, we're looking and acting and smelling more like the world. They don't see a difference in us. Instead of keeping our minds alert to pray, we've intoxicated our minds with more information so that our partial information is better than their partial information. Instead of loving each other deeply and accepting each other, we become suspect of each other. Our love is growing cold. Instead of opening up our homes and hospitality so that people can see the hope that we have, and if you've ever been in somebody's home who's been hospitable, your spirit just lifts. Many of us have not had a person in our home for 18 months. Instead of believers using their gifts and their resources to serve others, we've turned inward. And so it's insanely clear today that as believers in Jesus has redeemed people, 
We have allowed the events out there to cause us to disobey the word here. Our natural response is to follow the world when we're living in the end of times. You guys can see in your outline here. The text says, we are in the end of times. Arm yourself with the attitude of Jesus. That will help you work through suffering. Live for God. Let's kick the old stuff to the curb. And let's support each other. That's why we have the body of Christ. That's why we need to be in adult Bible fellowships. They're smaller communities to spur each other on to live for God. Number three, remember the end is very close. Four, stay alert to pray. What's dulling your mind? Let's engage in prayer and let's build each other up. The next one is love each other deeply. We need each other to spur each other on to love the Lord and love each other deeply. The next one, we also need to really go against our natural tendency and we need to practice hospitality. We need to regain that. The body of Christ should be showing the world what hospitality looks like. And lastly, the end of all things is near. Let's serve each other fervently. Every one of us should be able to put our finger on something we're doing to love God and serve others. If we cannot very quickly identify what we're doing to serve fervently, we are disobeying the commands in verses 10 and 11 to serve fervently for the glory of God. With that being said, I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, We're going to sing a song. And then we're going to close out our time. And if you're at home, I want to encourage you with this. With about three minutes of complete silence. We're doing that because this is what the Lord hears when the body does not pray. There is no relationship. So I want to encourage you, whether, again, you're at home, when you're done listening to this uh, live stream, shut everything off and just sit in quietness. The Lord is calling us. The end of things are near. We're to keep an alert mind and pray. So I invite you to start asking the Lord to really stir in your heart and really engage what Peter has said here about the end of all things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we're not facing the events of this world without our anchor of the truth. Thank you that you've spoken into these things. Thank you that we don't have to believe the lie that we're the first Christians who have faced certain things. That your early church was facing struggles and distractions. And Lord, help us to never believe that you're not coming back. Help us to really live in light of the reality that your return is soon. We are in the end of days. Please fortify our minds. Lord, help us to arm ourselves with the truth of Jesus Christ, suffering and dying and resurrecting. Forgive us of how we've disobeyed your word in these areas. And Lord, in this season, as we turn to you, help us to walk in obedience and find this refreshment that comes from your spirit as we walk in your ways in light of the end. Help us to recapture hospitality and loving each other deeply and praying fervently. Help us to capture the joy of kicking our old sin nature and the gross stuff that it brings up to the curb. 
Lord, help us to be that community that points to the Savior. And then people say, look with their God. I want to know more about the hope that they have. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Anchor us, help us to know it and walk in it and, and walk in the, the obedience of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.